This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more Rand analysis, reports, and commentary on issues at the forefront of today's policy debate, visit www.rand.org. Well, hello and welcome. I'm Jamie Fugelson, uh, the director of the Rand Corporation Office of Congressional Relations, and it is my pleasure today to welcome you to this Rand briefing on the use of long range armed drones, fact versus myth. On February 17th, the Obama administration announced a new policy setting standards for exporting and using armed drones, which will allow for the wider export of armed drones to allied nations. Today, our panel of RAND experts will discuss findings from the report, Armed and Dangerous, UAVs and U.S. Security, and will dispel some of the myths that have arisen with respect to the use of long-range armed drones. Today's discussion will answer questions such as, are long-range armed drones dramatically changing global warfare? How might U.S. armed drone policies shape the way other nations used armed drones? And how can preventing the potential proliferation of armed drones be balanced with future sales to allies? Today, we're joined by three speakers. On my immediate right, uh, Lynn Davis. She is a senior political scientist at RAND. From 2006 to 2014, she served as the director of RAND's Washington office. And from 1993 to 1997, she served as undersecretary of state for arms control and international security affairs. In the middle, we have Mike McNerney, uh, the Associate Director of the International Security and Defense Policy Center and a Senior Defense Research Analyst at the RAND Corporation. His research focuses on defense, uh, defense strategy and planning, civil military coordination, and international relations. And at the far end, we have Daniel Byman. Dan is, a, uh, is an adjunct political scientist and the former director of the RAND Center for Middle East Public Policy. Currently, he is professor in the Security Studies Program at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service and research director of the Center for Middle East Policy at the Brookings Institution. So with those introductory comments out of the way, I am pleased to turn over to Lynn to start today's briefing. Let me just say thank you um, as well for, for coming. Um, we're going to be talking about um, drones and U.S. security. When you think about the drones we're talking about, think about this picture because that's a long-range drone that's armed with a weapon. And so that's the focus of what it is that this briefing um, or our discussion is going to be about. Um, there are all kinds of other kinds of drones, and we can talk about those as well. But keep in mind this picture and this, uh, this thought as we go through um, our discussion today. So the focus of uh, what we're going to be uh, talking about today is the myths um, that have grown up around long-range armed drones. And our goal is going to be um, with you to dispel those myths. So the first myth is that these systems are transforming global warfare. The second myth is that it would be counterproductive for the United States and the global community to develop international norms for the use of these armed drones. And the third myth is that the global proliferation of these systems is such as demanding sort of new arms control efforts as well as blanket sort of restrictions on the sales of these systems. So those are our three myths, and we're going to take you through the reasons why we want you to walk away and no longer hold these ideas as you, as you walk away. So I'm going to let uh, Dan begin. Uh, thank you all for coming out on a somewhat stormy and APAC-ridden uh, day. So I appreciate you fighting through uh, crowds and weather to be here. Uh, I'm going to talk about this idea that uh, drones are transforming warfare. 
there's uh, statements by, by actually some very sensible people uh, of this idea that we're entering an age that uh, it's almost a, a science fiction sort of era where we're going to see warfare dominated by unmanned armed systems, and it's going to uh, really reshape how wars are fought and, you know, more fundamentally, kind of the, the nature of conflict. Um, I'm going to attack that, what I feel is a myth and what we feel is a myth, but I don't want you to take away the opposite conclusion, which is that drones don't matter at all. Um, okay. Uh, one thing drones do, very important advantage, is they give policymakers an intervention option where... In other circumstances, nothing might be done. So, for example, going deep into Pakistan to go after suspected al-Qaeda figures. Um, this is much easier with a drone. Um, and in particular, uh, because the drone pilot is going to live, even if the drone crashes, um, it reduces the political cost. So if you think about the horrible, horrible thing that happened with the Jordanian pilot um, who uh, was downed over Syria. Right? Uh, with a drone, of course, that doesn't happen, and that enables policymakers to take risks with interventions. And at times, it allows them to um, not do more massive interventions, so they don't have to put in ground troops because they can send a drone. Um, from a counterterrorism point of view, there are particular advantages. Uh, drones can loiter above a target. They can do so for extended periods of time. Uh, they offer precision in the strike, so you kill relatively few noncombatants. And as a result, uh, they've proven very effective against al-Qaeda-like targets. And there's been another set of documents recently released where al-Qaeda senior figures are complaining about these things, right? So to me, the best evidence for this is the bad guys, if you will, seem to agree with this. Um, however, a big caveat is um, the current drone system, so think about the picture that Lynn showed you at the beginning. Uh, these can easily be shot down by even vaguely competent air defenses. So we're talking drone activity in countries where those air defenses are either lacking or where we are on the side of the government. So in Pakistan and Yemen, the United States, according to press reports, is cooperating with the governments and as a result uh, have permission to fly over air defenses. And in Pakistan, if Pakistan changed its mind, it could drown the do down the drones tomorrow. Um, from a terrorist point of view, if you can imagine some of these systems in the hands of terrorists, uh, they're a little scary, and I'll discuss that, but the terrorists usually have other alternatives that are proven. Um, in particular, they use conventional explosives, and unfortunately, they use them quite well. And so they can achieve many of the effects they have with other means. Um, we, in the paper, go through a bunch of different scenarios, and I'm not going to drag you through all of these. But let me take you through a couple that are highlighted. Uh, so if you think about the United States fighting al-Qaeda or the Islamic State in Iraq, as I mentioned, it's low risk. You can reduce non-combatant uh, casualties. And in particular, it's a sovereignty infringement, but probably less of one than putting boots on the ground. Um, but adversaries can react in some ways. They can uh, not communicate as much. They cannot gather in large groups. And in general, they can present, prevent uh, less of a signature. So they offer benefits, but by themselves, not overwhelming. But in particular, the United States does have other means if it chooses to act. If there were no drones, you could still do special forces raids. You could still use manned aircraft. You could still use helicopters. And there are lots of other capabilities that, in different circumstances, aren't quite as good as what a drone can offer, but offer you a lot of the capacity in different ways. Um, let's take a very different scenario. Imagine Iran using an armed drone against Saudi Arabia. Um, if successful, the munitions we're talking about here would be much less effective than those on the manned aircraft, uh, based on current systems. But 
in particular, um, the Saudis would quickly down it. The Saudis have reasonable air defenses. It would be over. This is not something that the Iranians could do using current systems. Um, also, the Iranians have alternatives. They have alternatives with uh, suicide bombings. They have alternatives with subversion. So they wouldn't need the drone. Both, it wouldn't be effective, and they have other capabilities. Uh, if you uh, switch this around and imagine al-Qaeda using one against the U.S. homeland, uh, probably the biggest impact would be psychological. Right? People would be very scared. There would be this concern over death from above. But you have a trade-off from al-Qaeda's point of view, which is the current big systems are very hard to acquire, uh, somewhat difficult to use the way, certainly the way we use them. Um, but also, um, if they want to use smaller systems, they pack less of a punch. So there's a real difficulty in getting the full benefits from their point of view. They can be e easily shot down. And again, I'll stress, uh, they have alternatives. If the goal is to kill a few people, they have lots of means of doing so. Um, so this is uh, currently right now well beyond their ca capabilities. But even if you kind of imagine this, there are going to be limits. Um, OK, um, let me uh, turn things over to Mike, please. So our second myth is that it's counterproductive to develop international standards or norms for using armed drones. Some argue that drones are inherently destabilizing and therefore creating norms would provide an aura of legitimacy where none should really exist. Others argue that when you create norms that you're basically tying your own hands, so the US would tie its own hands and probably have no effect on the actions of others. We, however, argue that there's an opportunity now to establish international norms because there are legitimate and illegitimate uses for these systems. And because of recent actions by the administration um, that were pointed out in the, in the introduction, uh, there's, there's sort of an opening for that dialogue to start. Um, and Lynn will get into a little bit of that when it comes to exports, but the exporting is closely related to how the systems are used. So, First point, when we, when we think about an opportunity to, to create norms, we have to start with U.S. use to date. Um, and it's, it's been controversial. So the, the U.S. has used armed drones in many different types of operations. Sometimes it's been outside of war zones, and sometimes it's caused civilian casualties. Um, so it's controversial both at home and abroad. Um, the president recognized this, and a couple of years ago he gave a speech at National Defense University, which I'd recommend everybody to, to look up and, and review. Um, in that speech, he talked about uh, the need for greater transparency, the need for clear standards um, for how the systems uh, are used, and he committed to narrowing those standards um, for what would be an appropriate use of, of armed drones. Um, so, for example, he said uh, drone operators would have to establish what he called a near certainty that uh, no civilians would be in harm's way. Uh, that's a much higher threshold than existed in the past. Um, and in fact, since uh, that pronouncement, drone strikes have declined pretty significantly over the last couple of years. Um, and yet the debate has not gone away. So, so, so what's the problem? Um, I would say one of the problems now, the, the debate uh, where the debate is focused, is transparency. And so um, when, we, when we talk about uh, options uh, for increasing transparency, the president mentioned uh, increased congressional oversight. Uh, he mentioned, uh, well, others have mentioned uh, on, on Capitol Hill included, 
that the administration should provide more details about how targets, uh, target lists are developed and how a target is, is identified. Um, and then uh, what are the steps the government actually takes to avoid civilian casualties? So the government's made a commitment to uh, minimize civilian casualties, and, and most reporting shows that uh, civilian casualties have actually declined pretty significantly over the last couple of years, um, even as a percentage of the strikes. So not just because the number of strikes have gone down, but even as a percentage of those killed, the numbers of civilians seem to be declining. Um, but how, how are those, uh, how is that effort made to avoid civilian casualties? What's that process to make sure? Um, and then how does the U.S. investigate claims of civilian casualties after the fact? So there have been concerns that there's not been enough transparency in those areas in particular. Now, when we think beyond the U.S. use and we think about the use of others, um, then there could be even greater concerns. So uh, these are just uh, sort of a way to think about the two ways in which a country might uh, misuse these systems. First, they, they, it would cause great concern if they use them counter to international laws of war. Um, for example, uh, laws of war in terms of uh, thinking about the, the country using them for self-defense or using them in a way that uh, discriminates between combatants and non-combatants. So for the first example, uh, as, a, as in the case of self-defense, there was a pretty well-reported uh, case in 2013 where China apparently considered striking uh, a, a drug smuggler with an armed drone. Uh, the drug smuggler had, had uh, killed several Chinese sailors and escaped into Myanmar, and the Chinese government reportedly considered um, using an armed strike to, to kill the, the drug smuggler. Now, you can, now in the end, they, they decided to, to try to capture him, and I believe did capture him. Um, but you can imagine the, the outcry around the world if countries started to use armed drones to attack drug smugglers or other criminals. So basically using it as a law enforcement tool um, to kill uh, people, especially in over international borders. Um, this would create uh, a much greater level of concern than even we've seen so far. Um, another example of grave misuse is this idea of uh, targeting civilians. Uh, so in the case of perhaps political dissidents, if a country were to, to use an armed drone, or uh, if even to a lesser extent, but still very grave misuse would be if they didn't do the absolute most that they could do to minimize collateral damage. And so, and knowing what those processes are to, to take that into account, uh, if countries were not uh, doing that, I think the concerns about these systems would grow even more. Um, and then the other piece of this is domestic law. So you've got the international laws of war, but then you've also got the rule of law within a country. And again, I think uh, the U.S. in particular would be concerned if countries started to use armed drones uh, in a way that undermine their own rules of law. So in other words, if they uh, used armed drones for a mission and didn't have uh, a, a legal authority uh, for using them, or if they didn't have any legislative oversight. So you could imagine scenarios where um, a leader in a very opaque manner, uh, without consulting with their legislative branch or even within their larger government, 
uh, would begin to conduct strikes on, on targets without any sort of vetting process. Um, these would be much graver concerns uh, that I think could blow back on the U.S. Um, because uh, the U.S. is seen as the leader of the world trying to establish a precedent. And if, uh, if other countries started to misuse them, uh, countries that the U.S. would normally rely on to cooperate with for intelligence purposes might be more reluctant to cooperate. Um, and so that could, that could blow back uh, to inhibit future U.S. use of these systems. So ultimately, the U.S. faces this balancing act of, of trying to create norms that would preserve legitimate uses, for example, against Al-Qaeda, while at the same time uh, constraining others from using these systems um, in an illegitimate way. So uh, just a few examples of uh, potential international norms. In the president's speech, he actually outlined several uh, norms for use, and uh, they can serve basically as a foundation for some sort of international dialogue on norms. Um, I think uh, the first few bullets there show some examples that would be outside of a traditional war zone, and the standards would have to be particularly high if, if a country were to use uh, these systems outside of a war zone. Uh, so it's, it's been discussed in the past that uh, armed drones give an option to policymakers for using force when sometimes they may feel like they have no other choice. Uh, if, if they feel constrained to not use manned aircraft or special forces, they may feel like an unmanned system gives them a, a new option. Um, but that option has to be balanced with the considerations that we've talked about, international laws of war, uh, domestic rule of law. Um, and then they'd have to think about, is the target an imminent threat? Uh, is it a legitimate target? Uh, and can they not be captured? Uh, so pretty high standards. And then more generally, uh, should you have to, we have to have a dialogue where you ask questions about, should these operations be conducted only by militaries? And would those militaries need to have a, a transparent chain of command? Would you want national legislatures? To what extent would you want national legislatures providing oversight? Uh, and then what's the basis for the use of force? Um, I think a proactive approach by the U.S. Um, setting these international norms uh, would help hit that balance of preserving U.S. use uh, while also uh, preventing misuse by others. And I'll hand it over to Lynn to dive a little deeper into the exports. So we're back now to the third myth, and the myth kind of lays out this view that the proliferation of these long-range armed systems, you know, are, are such that we ought to be thinking about new arms control efforts and we ought to be thinking about blanket restrictions on their, on their potential sales. So remember, keep in mind um, the picture of the, the long-range drones. And when you think about proliferation, you're first of all thinking about, well, who is actually developing these types of systems? So if you sort of take a look at the countries that are actually developing systems that are longer range and that are armed, um, you'll find uh, that that number is actually relatively small. And we're using the categories from the missile technology control regime which basically differentiate these systems be by their range and payload. 
So when you look at the longer range ones and those that are armed, you're looking at about 11 countries that are currently developing these systems. And as it turns out, these, not surprisingly, because these are sophisticated high technology systems are being developed by countries who are, you know, have those, those kinds of capabilities. Um, most of these countries are U.S. allies or partners. Uh, so of those 11 countries, most, not all, but most are our allies and partners. And then those other countries that are not currently developing these systems um, are most likely, not necessarily entirely, but most likely to find other types of weapon systems um, more militarily effective and cost effective. So you're, you sort of step back and say, well, what kind of proliferation threat do I see by those that are actually developing the systems? And the proliferation threat, you know, is 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 pretty limited as you as you look through the actual actual countries. Then you say, but then I, but clearly I could be worried about various adversaries of mine um, acquiring these kinds of systems. And so another dimension of proliferation is, you know, do we have in place the, uh, a framework or regimes that can keep these types of systems and their technologies out of the hands of our adversaries? And actually we do have two such um, regimes. One is the missile technology control regime. And the other is a regime called the Vassenaar Arrangement. And in these cases, their guidelines are in place, and large numbers of countries um, are in those regimes um, and have committed to preventing the transfer of these types of systems to potential adversaries. So then you say, well, what about the, the fact that when Dan talked about the potential use of these systems, that there could be value to selling these systems to some of our friends, some of our allies, some of our partners. As it turns out, there's flexibility within both of those regimes and their guidelines to be able to make sales um, to those that we you know, would, would find to be you know, those that we would want to have these systems because they, they're fighting terrorists with us, they're potentially fighting insurgents with us. And so there's flexibility within the system, this, these, these particular regimes to, to make those sales. And, and beyond that, we see some real potential value to making those kinds of sales. Um, again, for the kinds of cases where these systems are attractive in counterinsurgency or counterterrorist kinds of operations, our friends, our allies, our partners, uh, you know, share with us, you know, our views on preventing the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, preventing the buildup of, of conventional arms. So they share with us those values. So for those countries, you know, we, you know, there would be no risks in selling them because of those potential concerns. And if concerns arise as to the potential use of these systems by our friends and allies, then the United States has, through its export control kind of system and the way we do foreign military sales is to place restrictions or constraints on the potential use of those systems in accordance with the kinds of norms that Mike talked about earlier, that is some international norms on how they would actually be used. And so, so as you step back and you say we have in place kind of regimes 
and support within those regimes for keeping these systems out of the hands of our adversaries. And we also have the flexibility in those systems to, I'm <coughs> sorry, in those regimes to make the sales, which could be in the U.S. national interest. And so, if you will, those are kind of taking you through the, the three myths. Um, and I want to conclude fairly briefly by just uh, the kind of our conclusions, and that is what it is we want you to take away from what it is that we've been describing to you over the last few minutes. And the first is that these long-range systems, keep the picture in mind, these long-range systems are operationally attractive um, against terrorists. And as you think about these systems as weapon systems, in my own mind, I, I think of them you know, like other conventional weapon systems. That is that you think about their value to us, the United States, and to our allies and partners. And we think about then the, you know, the potential risks of those systems um, in the hands of adversaries. And so I, I tend to think of them more like uh, aircraft than I would like ballistic missiles or cruise missiles, which you know, they've sometimes compared, compared with. So the second conclusion is that the United States, um, because we are um, the nation that has been using these systems, um, have the opportunity to kind of replace what may be seen by some as risky precedents for how these systems are used with leadership in establishing international norms to prevent their, their misuse by others. So we, we see this as a real opportunity for the United States and, and to take the leadership as the United States has, has done on some, some occasions in the past to kind of, to kind of think through and then bring around support to um, a set of international norms for the use of these particular systems. And then finally, just to repeat what you just heard me say, and that is that the proliferation threat is limited and there could be some real good reasons for us actually selling these systems um, to our friends and allies. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.